I'm afraid my sermon is slightly longer than the Bible reading. Uh, I apologize. Uh, hi, everyone. Lovely to, to see you. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's James. Uh, as Rosie was saying, I've been at HTC for eight years with my wife, Lucy, uh, and I've been asked to preach three times. This is my third. And I'm only ever asked to preach in August. And the reason is because in August, all the staff team, they go off to Marbella or wherever they go. And um, they're scraping the barrel to try and find someone to do a talk. And at the very bottom of the barrel is me. So uh, stop it, stop it. So please do bear with me. This might not be the um, five-star staff team sermon you're used to. But uh, the good news is that the Bible says it's not about what I want to say. It's about what God wants to say. So thank God for that. Um, And on that note, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this evening. Thank you that your word is powerful uh, and it changes lives. And so we pray that tonight you change our lives this evening as we think about this passage. Amen. Great. We are currently in a sermon series working through Hebrews 11, where the writer of Hebrews is listing out the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. Um, It's effectively a long list of big names in the Bible, the real heavy hitters. And almost every person named in Hebrews 11 is preceded by two words, by faith. If you were here last Sunday evening, you'd have heard Ben teaching us a new word, uh, anaphora, which I didn't know before, but refers to a technique in speech where you repeat a particular phrase again and again for effect. So think, I have a dream with Martin Luther King, or shake it off with Taylor Swift. And the equivalent phrase that is repeated in Hebrews 11 again and again is by faith. So if you have the passage open in your Bibles, Hebrews 11, do look down. Verse 4, by faith Abel brought God an offering. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken from this life. Verse 7, by faith Noah. Verse 9, by faith Abraham. And then the verse that we are focusing on today, verse 20. By faith... Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. And by looking at Hebrews 11, uh, plus the accounts of Isaac's life back in Genesis, uh, tonight we're going to be thinking about two key questions. Question one, what is faith? And question two, what does it look like to have faith? So let's start with question one. What is faith? Well, I don't know about you, but uh, if you walked up to someone in the street and you asked them what faith is, you might get the answer like this. Faith is believing in something without evidence. It's trusting in something when you don't actually know whether it's true or not. That's what our dear friend Richard Dawkins thinks, uh, the famous atheist. He says this, he says, faith is belief without evidence and reason, and coincidentally, that's also the definition of delusion. Or take the philosopher A.C. Grayling. He says, to believe something in the face of evidence and against reason, i.e. to believe something by faith, is ignoble, irresponsible, and ignorant, and merits the opposite of respect. So is that us? Well, I want to start by saying that I think, in fact, the Christian view of faith is the complete opposite of the way that that was described. You do not have faith by suspending all of your cognitive faculties or just by switching off your brain. Instead, it works a bit like this. Firstly, through evidence and reason, we become convinced of the truth of Jesus. We become intellectually convinced of the fact that Jesus was a real person in history. 
and that he died and that he rose from the dead. And it is on that basis that we can have faith that everything Jesus said is true. Faith is not believing in the absence of evidence. It's being able to trust on the basis of evidence. So if that's the case, what about Hebrews 11 verse 1? If you see that in your Bibles, that says this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Or there's another verse in the Bible that's quite famous that says this. We live by faith and not by sight. Now that that does sound a bit weird, right? It does sound slightly opposed to reason. We don't live by sight. What does the Bible mean when it says we live by faith but not by sight? Well, perhaps this analogy might help. A few years ago, uh, I went to the dentist, and I was wonderfully told by the dentist that I needed not one, but two of my wisdom teeth to be removed. Or to be more specific, perhaps a bit, more, a bit too specific, um, one of them had to be fully removed. The other one was growing horizontally into my other teeth, and so they couldn't get it out. They had to cut it in two and take half of it out. Uh, now, the dentist reassured me that this was a standard procedure, it was very safe, it was incredibly low risk, and so on that basis, I went ahead. Skip forward a couple of weeks later, there I am at Guy's Hospital in London Bridge, uh, I'm in the operation chair, and I look ahead of me. And what do I see? Well, first I see this long needle full of anesthetic that they're about to poke into my neck, to render half of my face unconscious. Uh, then I see this sort of terrifying metallic device that I don't really know what it does, but it's gyrating and they're gonna stick it in my mouth uh, so that um, it's gonna cut one of my teeth in two. I see stacks of towels, not just one towel, multiple towels, <laughs> ready for the deluge of blood that's gonna be flowing. Now, if I was living by sight, what would I do in that situation? I'll tell you what I'd do, I would run out the door immediately. But I didn't. Instead, I remembered what the dentist had told me. This is a standard procedure, it's very low risk. And so I lived by faith. But it's not blind faith. Of course not, it's faith in the dentist. Faith on the basis that the dentist is a professional, that they're well qualified, that they've done their training, and that they know what they're talking about. And so similarly, when the Bible asks us to have faith, rather than living by sight, it does not ask us to have blind faith. It just asks us to have a rational faith on the basis of evidence that Jesus died and rose again, and to trust that over what we might see in front of us on a day-to-day basis. So, enough about the theory. What's the implication for us? Well, let's be honest. I think every single one of us, at times in our lives, will have had doubts. Doubts about our faith. It might be triggered by something someone said to us, something we read, something we thought, a difficult event in our life, something that challenges what we believe. It might challenge our view on suffering, our view on ethics, loads of different possibilities. And too often, our instinctive human response, when that happens, is we take a flight mentality. We respond by shutting down. We we refuse to engage with those big questions and, and we run away. We bury those doubts deep in the depths of our memories and we just hope that things will move on. Now, that may be tempting, but in the end, that is a terrible strategy because over time, it means we have really, really weak 
foundations for our faith. And just like the man who built his house on the sand, when things get really hard, we will crumble. The main risk to our faith is not that we think too much about the difficult questions. It's that we don't think about them at all. And by the way, this is exactly why HTC has something called the Alpha Course. Because the Christian faith is all about thinking things through. It's not, it's not about being afraid to ask the difficult questions or trying to hide them away. No, Alpha gives you the space to do that. Now, there are certainly dangers on the other extreme. We can sometimes be overly intellectual in our faith. If our faith's only something up here in our minds, but it doesn't impact our heart, then we drift into that other danger of being a Pharisee. But the reality is that we need to engage with Jesus both with our hearts and with our minds. Remember what Jesus said when he was asked, what is the most important commandment? He said, love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And in fact, all of those are connected. Often as contemporary Western Christians, we might think about them as separate or we might talk about our faith moving from our heads to our hearts and things like that. But in fact, the Israelites of Jesus' time, they didn't make such a big distinction between the, the head and the heart. They saw them more as two sides of the same coin. You couldn't do one without the other. And specifically, they knew that if we understood God better in our mind, then actually, the natural consequence is that we would learn to love him more. Here's an example for you. I... I quite like cars. I quite like cars. I, I'm not a massive car fanatic, but if I see you know, a Tesla or a Ferrari in the street, then I can appreciate it looks nice, uh, it's going quickly, makes a cool noise. I've heard Tesla's got karaoke, that sounds quite fun. Uh, but that is basically the extent of my appreciation in cars. But I have some friends who actually know how cars work. They're engineers, and they know how the pistons turn the axle and something like that. Uh, and then uh, they know how the car actually starts moving along. And those people, in my experience, they're really able to appreciate a nice car. Why? Because they understand them. It's not just a superficial appreciation like mine. It's a deeper, fuller admiration. It's true in other areas. If you played me a Mozart symphony, I might quite enjoy it, perhaps. But if you play it to someone who really understands music, it gives them so much more pleasure. Why? Because they understand all of the, the details and the intricacies that have gone into that. And it's the same with faith. The more we study God, the more we learn about the depths of his character and the depths of the world that he made, the more we can learn to love him. So that's the first question. What is faith? Faith is not blind, but is trusting in Jesus on the basis of evidence. Second question, what does it look like to have faith? To think about this, we're going to look at the story of Isaac, who's mentioned in that passage. If you want to read about Isaac more in your own time, then Genesis 25 to 28 uh, is where to go. But just for you, I'll give you a potted history. Isaac lived in the 18th century BC. He was born in Canaan, which is modern-day Israel. Uh, and Isaac was the son of Abraham and Sarah, now, you might know that uh, in Abraham's life, God gave Abraham a covenant. He promised him three things. He promised him an abundance of land, an abundance of blessing, and an abundance of descendants. He said to him, you would have as many descendants as stars in the sky. And so Isaac, as his son, 
was one of the very first of those descendants that God had promised. Now, it didn't start smoothly, though, because Isaac had a wife named Rebecca, uh, but the Bible says that Rebecca couldn't have children. And so the prospect of future descendants wasn't looking great. But after Isaac prayed to the Lord, um, amazingly, Rebecca became pregnant and she gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. So at this stage, things seemed to be going all right. But this is when the biblical account goes downhill. Issue after issue after issue occurs. First, favoritism. The Bible says that even while those twins were in Rebecca's womb, they were fighting with each other already. And that was a sign of what was to come, because once the two twins were born, each of the parents had a favorite child. It says that Isaac preferred Esau, who was the elder son, and so therefore in uh, Jewish custom would have had the birthright or the inheritance, whereas Rebecca, his wife, loved Jacob, the younger son. Not ideal. This then led to sibling conflict. So this favoritism drove competition between the twins. Um, and in fact, it became so dysfunctional that at one point, Esau agreed to sell his birthright to his brother Jacob in return for a bowl of stew. The stew must have been quite nice. Uh, favoritism, sibling conflict. Next, we have lying. In the next chapter of Genesis, some Philistines come up to Isaac, and they, they spot Rebecca, his wife, and um, they say, oh, who's that? Who's that over there? Now... Isaac is a bit nervous about this. He's worried that um, if they find out he's married to such a beautiful woman, then they might kill him. And so what he does in fear is that he lies to them. And he says, oh, no, no, Rebecca's my sister. It's fine. Favoritism, sibling conflict, lying. And then we get to chapter 27. Now, by this point, Isaac's very old, uh, and he's actually gone blind. And remember back that Rebecca preferred Jacob, who was the younger son, and wanted Jacob to get the birthright from Isaac. So in order to make sure that this happened, she hatched a plan. She made Jacob dress up as Esau. So they, she, she got his clothes, and she even made a, a fake beard and hair for uh, Jacob to put on. And then she got Jacob to go up to Isaac and ask for his blessing. Now, amazingly, this bizarre plan worked. Jacob went up to Isaac, asked for his blessing. Isaac thought it was Esau and gave it to him. What was the end result? Well, obviously, Esau was pretty angry and tried to kill Jacob as a result, and so Jacob ran away. That is basically the end of the biblical account of Isaac's life. It's a pretty strange and drastic life, really. I'm not sure even EastEnders would try and go for a plot quite as wacky as that. But overall, what a mess! Favoritism in the family, brothers who hated each other, Isaac lying about his wife, Rebecca, Rebecca and Jacob lying to Isaac about who Jacob was. The family was completely dysfunctional. Completely divided. And yet, the writer of the Hebrews says what? By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Isn't that remarkable? It's such a messed up life. And all Hebrews does is just commends Isaac for his faith. And in fact, this doesn't just apply to Isaac. If you look at the people mentioned in chapter 11 of Hebrews, so many of them lived utterly dysfunctional and morally reprehensible lives. Let me give you some examples from this chapter in Hebrews. Firstly, Noah. We all love Noah. The same Noah that built the famous ark. By the end of his life, the Bible ends with him becoming a drunk. Abraham. In Egypt, Abraham effectively sold his wife to Pharaoh and allowed him to sleep with her in return for wealth and protection. 
Jacob, Isaac's son, we've talked about this, he deceived his father and cheated his brother to get the inheritance. Rahab, she's mentioned, she was a prostitute. Gideon, he made a statue out of gold and ordered all the Israelites to worship that instead of God. David, King David, the great hymn writer, he had an affair with a lady called Bathsheba, and then he arranged for her husband to be killed in battle to cover it up. An adulterer and a murderer. It's terrible. It's easy to skim over all of this, but just let it sink in. These aren't just petty crimes. No, murder, adultery, idolatry, deception. Imagine if any of these people applied to join the HDC staff team. They would not have a hope. King David for worship leader. He has written a few classics. But seriously, a murderer? Gideon as Ordinand. The same Gideon that told the Israelites to worship a statue rather than God. I'm not sure I'd really want him preaching, even in August. It's, it's incredible. The Bible stands out among all the world's religious texts because the people in it are so flawed. And I'm afraid it's not even the case that, you know, this was all a rebellious teenager phase and then they repented and they came back to God and it was all fine, like the prodigal son. No, some of these moral issues stayed with them their whole life. It wasn't just a simple happy ending. So what does this tell us about what it looks like to have faith? Well, not only does the Bible stand out in that its characters are so flawed, but it also stands out in that it offers us a savior. Not a list of things to do or activities to perform, instead a savior to trust. And I think by having such broken humans involved in the story, God is trying to tell us that our faith and our salvation is ultimately not about us. It is not about our moral record or our personal justification. Instead, it is fundamentally about what God does for us. And this passage in Hebrews 11 is God trying to hammer into us that reality. It's not about us. It's about him. And the even more remarkable thing is not, not, not only does God you know, complete his gospel mission in spite of those people, it's actually that he completes his gospel mission through those people. Their moral flaws do not disqualify them at all for being used by God. I mentioned earlier that uh, God made a promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. That's a huge promise. And at so many points in Abraham's life or in Isaac's life or in Jacob's life or elsewhere in the Old Testament, that would have looked utterly ridiculous, impossible. How on earth could this bunch of broken, messy people be the means by which God brings blessing to the whole world? Foolishness. And yet, if you have time this week, once you finish Genesis 25 to 27, it's a lot to do, open your Bibles uh, and find Matthew chapter 1. Because Matthew 1 traces bit by bit the lineage all the way from Abraham to Isaac, all the way down to Jesus. And you can see all those people with all their failings, all their deception, all their dysfunctional families, all their sins, and God ultimately uses them to bring Jesus into the world. 
And yet it doesn't end there. You know, we know the next bit of the story. Jesus comes to earth and he dies and he rises again. And then Jesus, before he leaves, he promises to his disciples that through them, with the help of the Holy Spirit, through them, the gospel will reach the ends of the earth. Now, this would be like the promise to Abraham all over again. To the disciples, this would have seemed utterly ridiculous, absurd. The disciples, a bunch of misfits who'd never left their home country and whose leader Jesus was just about to leave them, it would have seemed so far-fetched. And yet, what happens? Over the coming centuries, Christianity explodes. Here's a few key dates. If you're a history fan, you'll love this bit. In 42 AD, Mark goes to Egypt to spread the gospel. In 49 AD, Paul has his first trip to Turkey. In 51 AD, Paul has his first trip to Greece. In 52 AD, Thomas goes to India. By 280 AD, you see the first rural churches emerging. That's in northern Italy. So for the first time, Christianity is not just an urban thing. By 350 AD, a majority of the Roman Empire, historians think, would claim Jesus Christ as their Lord. In 600 AD, Gregory the Great sends a group of missionaries here to England. And in the first two years of their arrival, they estimate that 10,000 people became Christians. By 635 AD, the first missionaries arrive in China. By the 16th century, the gospel reaches the New World in the Americas. And then this is my favorite. In 1825, we see the first recorded Maori convert to Christianity. Or in other words, the gospel had reached the ends of the earth. Jesus' promise was fulfilled. And to this day, it goes on and on and on and on. And this evening, we are caught up in it. Now, just imagine how Abraham or the early disciples would react to that. And at every single stage, God has used not perfect people, but the broken, the weak, the sinful, you and me. But people of faith who are willing to trust God and try to follow him. That is all he requires. So maybe then you might ask, okay, great. Um, good to know I don't need to be perfect, but how much faith do I need to be a Christian? How confident do I have to be? I've sometimes wondered that in the past. And I think it's a bit like this. Um, imagine that you, you've gone on a walk, uh, a lovely hike, but it's a bit dangerous, not very sensible. You're walking alongside a ravine, as you do, uh, and the inevitable happens, you slip. And you're tumbling down this ravine, accelerating and accelerating, you know that it's over. But just as you're falling out of the corner of your eye, you see below this huge net all the way across the ravine, tied from one side to the other. Now, in that situation, how much faith do you need to be saved? Well, it's a bit of an odd question, isn't it? It's not, it's not really about my faith or the strength of my faith. What really determines whether I survive is not the strength of my faith, but the strength of the net. And so similarly, when we ask that question, how much faith do I need? I think we're drifting back into that mindset that we have to do something. We have to justify ourselves. But ultimately, whether we are saved or not is not dependent on how much faith we have but instead on the object of our faith. And the amazing truth of the Bible is that the object of our faith is Jesus. 
And Jesus is entirely secure. Why? Because it's written in history. Our sins have already been paid for on the cross. Death has already been defeated through his resurrection. And Jesus is already seated on his throne in victory. The word seated being important there. He's sitting down because he's done everything he intended to. And not only that, but amazingly, the Bible says in Ephesians that, incredibly, God has raised us up and has already seated us alongside Jesus in the heavenly realms. This is a present reality for us. It's not just something in the future. It's where we are right now. And so maybe this evening you do wish you would have more faith. Maybe you'd call yourself a Christian, or maybe you wouldn't. But either way, you just wish you could believe more fully than you do. I certainly feel like that sometimes. And that's not always just a theoretical thing. That can be incredibly personal and incredibly painful. You may have prayed for years and years to have more confidence, and you just don't feel like there's progress. Well, speaking honestly, one of the prayers that I have prayed most in my life are the words from a man to Jesus in Mark chapter 9, where he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And if that resonates with you, maybe just three points to close. Number one, if you have doubts and questions, please talk about them. Talk about them with a friend. Talk about them at Alpha. Talk about them with me. Read books that are helpful. And just like doing weights at the gym, not that I really do that very much, uh, as you process those doubts and you challenge your faith, it will strengthen it. Second point, take heart from the fact that ultimately what, sa what saves you is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. The great paradox of Christianity is that the more we realize our insufficiency, our inability even to have a consistent faith in God, then the more we realize just how much we need a savior. And actually, isn't that the most important thing we need to realize in our whole life? And finally, even if you feel like your faith is weak and fragile, take heart from all those examples in the Bible. That does not rule you out at all from being, God, from being used by God. And remember Jesus' words, that even with faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains.